While we turn to the gospel according to Luke, we are a church that does expository preaching, and we are in the gospel of Luke called Mission to the World, the, the, the unique perspective of Luke, Dr. Luke, showing us that Jesus loves all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and all, all people. We are in chapter 6, verse 43 through 49. I know earlier there was a different verse up there, but Mike, uh, our deacon, read the, the correct passage. But we're in Luke chapter 6, verses 43. We'll continue to the end of the chapter, verse 49, where Jesus now is ending or concluding his sermon, which we've called Sermon on the Plain. Uh, if you remember, let's just take a jump start into this text. If you remember, Luke in chapter 1 is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he's giving us an investigative eyewitness account of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one in that day would have said this is folklore or, or legend, but everyone in that day, so no matter what your professors tell you in school, this is not folklore, this is not legend, this is a written historical narrative of Christ. The first couple of chapters, uh, Luke describes the announcement and birth uh, narratives of both Jesus and the forerunner, which was John the Baptist, came proclaiming a baptism of repentance as he prepared the way for the Lord. Both men, we learned, are a, uh, were the fulfillment of the prophetic promises of God in the Old Testament. And although the narratives were somewhat similar, Luke makes it clear that Jesus Christ is superior as the eternal Son of the living God. He's the Savior of the world. He's the light for revelation to the Gentile. He's the, the glory to the people of Israel. He's the coming king, the promise that was given to King David that Jesus will sit on an everlasting throne. And then after Jesus' baptism and the genealogy which connects Jesus to not only humanity but shows forth his deity, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Unlike the first Adam who failed the test, bringing sin into the world, Jesus passed the test, had victory over temptation, and therefore it qualifies him to pay the debt of our sins that we deserve. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Then Jesus begins his earthly ministry in Galilee. That's what we've been, we've been tracking with that ministry. Declaring and demonstrating that he is the King of Kings. He has authority and power as he taught the word of God. He had authority and power over evil spirits, sickness, creation, defilement, even over forgiveness of sins as he heals the paraplegic man and over the Sabbath. And throughout his teaching and preaching and healing ministry, Jesus has been calling people to repent, to turn from their sins and to follow him. It's a call of discipleship. It's a call of discipleship. And we saw that as his popularity has been growing, so has his opposition. Then in chapter 6, Jesus calls and names his 12 apostles, and he begins to prepare, prepare them to form a new community, to take his mission of redemption to the world. And with his newly appointed apostles, chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus begins to teach his disciples, chapter, again, chapter 6, verse 12. 20, not verse 12, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, he's teaching now his disciples what it means to follow him. We are, Jesus said, the blessed one. Blessed are you. The ones who have already had their sins forgiven, transgressions forgiven, their sins have been covered. We talked about that. That's what it means to be blessed. 
a pastoral intern last week, Josh Baker, did a great job reminding us that the commands that Jesus is teaching us here in, in the Sermon on the Plain is a passage, a passage that flows out of our status as disciples. There aren't things we do to gain status as a disciple. They, they flow from being a disciple of Jesus. And one of, the ways, uh, one of the ways in which we know that, one of the things that Jesus is teaching us, is that being a disciple of Jesus doesn't just begin by changing you by the power of his spirit through grace and faith. It changes how you interact with other people. I thought that was really smart to, to mention. Uh, family, how you act, how we act toward outsiders, does not make you cannot make you a follower of Christ, it somehow won't gain some way of earning favor with God, how you act towards people, but how you act and how you treat others will demonstrate whether or not the life of Christ is living in you. See, salvation is a free gift by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But sanctification, that process whereby God the Holy Spirit is transforming us not only into the likeness of Christ, but what he is doing also is he's empowering us to act as Christ would want us to act. And sanctification is the trajectory of every Christ follower, all his disciples. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit as we walk with Jesus, that we can, verse 22 and verse 23 of chapter 6, rejoice and leap for joy when we're hated, excluded, and reviled. It is only by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we can love our enemies, chapter 6. Bless those who curse us. Uh, pray for those who abuse us. Give without expecting anything in return. Doing good to our enemies. Being merciful because God has been merciful to us in the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals to us the beauty and the glory of of Christ, who is the gospel. And some of you, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a Roman Catholic tradition, some of you here have as well, and when you hear the word gospel, I, I know me, or you think of the reading of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's true, it is the reading of the gospel. One gospel, four accounts. But the gospel is also, as you keep reading scripture, is that God is holy, and God is perfect, and God is just, and God created us in his image, in the Imago Dei, in his likeness, and image and likeness. But our sin has separated us from him. We deserve his righteous judgment, for we are by nature, the Bible says, children of wrath, Ephesians 2. But then it goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Through faith, it's not of your doing. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. And we understand the gospel. We can love the unlovable. Why? Because that's who we were, unlovable, rebellious towards God, but God loved us. We give to those who could never repay because that was us. We came to the cross empty-handed, helpless, Helpless we come to the cross. We bless those who don't deserve blessing because that was us. We, we love our enemies and do good to them because that was us. We were an enemy of God, enmity with God. And, but yet God saved us, rescued us, loved us, and blessed us. We, we're, we're not quick to judge. I'm just reading from chapter 6. We talked about this. This is a sermon that Jesus preached. All right? we're, we're not quick to judge and condemn others because that is what we deserve. But we have received mercy in the gospel. We can be honest about the sin 
in our own eye, the, the log that's sticking out of our eye, before we go ahead and take out the speck that is in our brother's eye. Why? Because the gospel teaches us that our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. Josh said it well last week. He said, it's hard to love when you are marked by judgmentalism, religious hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. The problem is that we don't have enough gospel. See, when, so when, you, when you're self-righteous and you're judgmental and you're, 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 you're always pointing out everybody else's sin and you've got this log sticking out of your head, it's because you don't have enough gospel. The fact that Jesus bore our judgment, took our condemnation, and the, what we so richly deserve, he does it and he forgives us and takes the judgment on the cross. You can't be judgmental, hypocritical, and self-righteous if you understand what God has done for you. We must speak out. I mean, Josh mentioned this last week. I'll just say this. We move on. It's not that we never judge. Josh did a great job. You didn't see it. It's online. It's not that we never judge what's right and wrong, but the problem is when Jesus talks about do not judge, he's talking about being fixated on everybody else's sin and not dealing with your own. That's what he means. If we need to speak out, we do. We need to be doing it with patience, hope for a change, do so with love and mercy. And as we get to the end of this sermon that Jesus is preaching, and one of the ways that we can recognize what Jesus is talking about, being a disciple, being a follower of Christ, what it looks like, one of the ways that we can recognize whether or not we are true followers of Christ, led by the Spirit, deeply drinking of the gospel, is to identify, listen, to identify the fruit that we are producing. You knew I had to get to the text sooner or later, right? The fruit a tree produces cannot be different from the character of the tree itself. Number one. Number two, we can't recognize whether or not we are truly followers of Christ, led by the Spirit, drinking of the gospel, if we do not do what the Lord commands us to do. So we can recognize, are we disciples or not? Well, Jesus tells us, look at the fruit. Are, are, you, are you obeying what I've told you to say, uh, told you to do? If you're like that, you're built on a foundation, a strong foundation. So really just two points today. First thing is bearing good fruit, okay? Gospel disciples produce good fruit from a good heart, okay? Bearing good fruit. Gospel disciples produce good fruit from a good heart. Second, building deeply. Gospel disciples obey and build on a deep or a firm foundation, okay? Two points. Number one, verse 43, look at our text as we're going through Luke together. Look, look at verse 43. The first word in the text is for. For is written there to take us back and tie us back to what was written before that. For, and he's going back to verse 42. But I think Jesus is actually going back to verse 27. I think he's wrapping up his sermon and he's speaking, uh, going back. He's saying, good bearing and bad bearing fruit. Uh, is not only just talking about the, the, the sin, this log that's sticking out of your eye, but it's a description of all that Jesus has been teaching since verse 27. You see, the best assessment of discipleship is to ask this question. Is the fruit of my life, is the fruit of our life, the product of living the way that Jesus taught us to live? Loving enemies, being non-judgmental, forgiving others, being merciful to others. Because the true profession of faith, a true profession of faith is evidenced by the practice of our faith. James, the Lord half-brother, said, said this, We ought to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. 
And Jesus' analogy, or I would say it's a parable as well, is not very complicated, really. Jesus takes something that is natural, something that is ordinary, that's what a parable is, taking something natural and ordinary, and laying aside, or laying it alongside a spiritual truth in order to teach us a spiritual lesson. That's what a parable is. And this first parable comes from agriculture. Trees and fruit. I think it's also, I think it's important to recognize that the health of a tree depends upon its roots. And the roots of a healthy tree will bear good fruit, good and nourishing fruit. My wife, my, my sweet and lovely wife has gotten into planting and gardening since her retirement. And different herbs were planting all over the house. <laughs> Learning how important it is for the root system, right? I got permission to say this. You're like, man, I hope he got, yes, I did. She's learning about root systems and how important it is with different soils and sunlights and moisture, how important, again, the roots are. Jesus takes two kinds of trees here that produce two of the main agriculture products of Israel, figs and grapes. And the point is simple, right? A person knows the health of a tree by its fruit. Fruit will be good, healthy, attractive, or bad, harmful, useless, rotten, depending on the health of the tree. And therefore, a good and healthy tree uh, won't or can't produce bad fruit. And likewise, a bad and unhealthy tree can, can't and will not produce good fruit. And then notice what Jesus does. He adds a twist to the story. He says, you don't run to a thorn bush and look for figs, nor do you run to a ramble bush and look for grapes. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm the furthest thing from an agricultural expert, I'll tell you right now. But even I understand <laughs> that a tree can only produce the kind of truth, tr fruit that it was created to produce, right? Good trees do not produce bad trees as well. A uh, bad fruit, a bad tree does not produce good fruit. A fig tree produces figs. A grapevine produces grapes. Basic laws of nature. Every tree produces its kind. Now, I, I don't want to press too deeply into a parable because then when you can start getting crazy and start interpreting it all kinds of different ways. But I think it's fair to say that fruit does not determine the tree. The tree determines the fruit. In other words, fruit is not a work, something external disassociated from its source, but a product that resembles the nature of the tree. You will produce what you are and not something different, right? Farmers never get the right kind of fruit from the wrong tree, or the right kind of tree never produce the wrong kind of fruit. That's the point. And then Jesus drops the mic, right? Verse 45. Therefore, this parable I'm teaching you is common sense, natural laws. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces what? Good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces what? Evil. And if you are right now inclined to be that fruit inspector on your neighbor, your wife, your husband, your spouse, your friend, uh, and the person sitting next to you, let me you know, point you back to verse 37 and 42 about judging others so quickly, right? <laughs> Taking the speck out of your brother or sister's eye and not seeing a giant log sticking out of your head, Right? Not that there's ever a time that there needs to be uh, some fruit inspection going on, but that time never comes first. <laughs> Jesus' primary intent here is self-examination, not the examination of others. 
And the metaphor in this parable of the good tree and the worthless tree makes the point that the fruit a person bears grows out of his or her inner existence. Look what it says. The good treasure of his heart produces good. Evil treasure produces evil. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. What Jesus is not saying. Somehow, in your own power, in your own strength, in your own determination, decide that you are now going to have a good heart producing good fruit. The scriptures are abundantly clear that our natural unregenerated hearts will only produce worthless, unfit fruit. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. Although it's not explicitly taught here, the context of what a good heart or a good person comes from, I think we can go back even to Luke chapter 3 when Jesus spoke to, uh, when, when, excuse me, when John the Baptist called people to repentance to bear what? Fruit of thy repentance. And even here, Jesus is talking to people, his disciples. We saw that in verse 20. People who already have repented, who already have been forgiven, who already are the blessed ones on how to act. And therefore, to have a good heart, to bear fruit, must come from the source within. And Jesus, I would claim, Jesus saying that it is him and the gospel. He's speaking to his disciples who've already made a decision to repent and trust him. A bad tree produces hate, judgment of others, a good tree rooted in Christ produces a love even of enemies and a non-condemning, non-judgmental attitude. And by Jesus linking the heart and the fruit together, tying together, he, what he's doing, he's taking motives and he's tying together that with action. Works, deeds, actions are ultimately really a matter of the heart. Right? The product can never be entirely divorced from the motive. And family, it's not ultimately about you and I trying harder, doing better. It's really about you and I drinking deeply of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, our deeds, our work will be produced in us through the source, his name is Jesus, and that gospel fruit, that good fruit, will produce and bring glory to God. Let's go deeper. Look at the connection here in our text between a good person, the fruit, a good person to a good fruit, and good what? Treasure. Good treasure. Everyone at the center of their heart and the center of their soul has something that they treasure. And what does it mean? What does that, what does that look like? What does it mean to treasure something? It means to look at something, to fill your heart with the beauty of something, and to value it. Treasure. To say, if I have this, everything is worth it. If I have this, I'm worthwhile. Whether it's money, whether it's careers, whether it's status, whether it's a relationship, whether it's children, grandchildren, you name it. At the center of the soul, there's something that is precious. Something you've looked at. And you said, that's, that's precious to me. And let me tell you this morning, there is only one good treasure of heart that can produce a good heart and healthy fruit. And that is when the heart's treasure ultimate treasure is Christ. Treasuring him above all earthly treasures. It reminds me of Matthew 13. Jesus speaking of the kingdom of heaven. Remember when you hear the word kingdom, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, the first thing we think about is the king. He said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven, think of king, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and then bought it. How do you make Jesus Christ your treasure? Again, savoring and deeply drinking of the gospel. Think of it like this. Jesus Christ had the ultimate treasure. Jesus Christ is the word who was with God, face to face with God, and the word who is God, John 1. He had the ultimate status. He had the ultimate authority. He had the ultimate security. He's the son of God who shared in the incalculable glory with the Father. But then he, what, stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth, took on flesh, and went to the cross. He was stripped naked of all his belongings and all his possessions. And that was just a glimpse of the fact that he was spiritually stripped. Yes, he lost his treasures, earthly possessions. But on the cross, he was forsaken by the Father. Why? Well, you only die for that which is precious to you. It's valuable to you. Isaiah 53 tells us by prophecy when he... Jesus saw the results of his suffering. He was satisfied. 1 Peter 2 says, You are a chosen race, a royal nation. Excuse me, a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You, disciples, children of God, you are God's own purchased possession. What this means is Jesus Christ looked at us and said, If if I have them, then, then the crucifixion, Experiencing hell by being forsaken on the cross is worth it. And we have become his treasure through the gospel. We need to see and to embrace that the gospel meant he was willing to lose all his earthly treasures, step out of glory, so that we now can become his treasure. Tim Keller said this, Jesus himself is the one treasure who died to purchase you. Anything else you make your supreme value will say, Die for me. But if you make Jesus Christ your supreme value, he's the only one who says, I've died for you, end quote. Every earthly treasure, every earthly treasure will someday be worthless and inadequate for eternity. When Christ is mine, is your supreme satisfaction, my greatest treasure, what I value the most, it will produce good fruit. We must apply the gospel, God's grace, God's love, God's free mercy and forgiveness, acceptance, the imputation of his righteousness to our hearts. And when the gospel, the treasure of Christ, is motivating me, then the fruit I will bear, the fruit of my actions, of my life, will actually fulfill the commandment to love God and to love others. And then Jesus makes it clear and says, what, what, what will happen then is what we say. Look what it says. At the end of verse 45, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. A good person, good treasure, produces good. Evil, out of his own evil treasure, produces evil. For, connecting it back, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You see that? The mouth becomes that spigot. That which flows from what was hidden in the heart just pours out. And speech reveals, the scripture says, what's inside. Paul Tripp, in his book called War and Words, writes this. It is very tempting, listen to this, it is very tempting to blame others or to blame the situation around us, but word problems reveal 
heart problems. The people and situations around us do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasions for our hearts to reveal themselves in words, end quote. The tongue, the things we say, reveal our hearts. Our words, many times, are the, the, the single and most direct communication of the inward being. Tongues, a sound system, I read this week. I thought that was good. Tons of sound system. Whatever, whatever's in our soul gets amplified when we open our mouths. Angry words come from a hateful heart. Crude words come from a perverted heart. A complaining heart comes from an envious heart. And family, we know all too well that Christ is still, even when we're born again, children of God, disciples of Jesus, we still struggle with the things we say. Not, right? Am I, is it only me? Okay, just checking. We struggle. We ask God, change us. Keep our lips, our hearts centered on you by the power of your spirit. Repent of our desires that are, that are not the desires of Christ, not placing him as a supreme treasure of our hearts. It means putting to death by the spirit selfish love, love of the world. We need to fan into flame through the gospel the affections of Christ. And once our hearts are, 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 are treasuring Christ, then we will begin to see good hearts, good fruit bearing good spiritual fruit as we follow the commands of Christ. I couldn't help but think of Philippians chapter 3 when I was studying this week. The Apostle Paul writes this. Whatever gain I had, all the things and treasures of this world, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, the value, the treasure, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. When Christ is our treasure, when Christ is our ultimate treasure, it will be a good heart that produces good fruit, like loving enemies, doing good to others, forgiving, having mercy, all the things that Jesus said. Bearing good fruit. Gospel decided to produce good fruit from a good heart. Number two, building deeply. Why do you call me, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Again, right, you don't, you don't need to be a theologian to figure out what Jesus is saying. Right? It's simple. Huge implication. Why give me the title, the honor, the respect, Lord, and ignore what I'm telling you to do? In fact, the double invocation, Lord, Lord, is a way of implying an intense uh, an affirmation, a, a sense of loyalty, allegiance, as if to say, uh, you know, I have a deep personal affection. I know you intimately. But Jesus would say, uh, the life that makes the confession without obedience is without substance. It, it's hypocrisy. Regardless of this, this emotional plea. Here the disciples are being challenged to not join others who, who would pay respect yet ignore what Jesus is teaching and not do what he called us to do. Now obedience is not a matter, listen, obedience is not a matter of rule keeping to somehow gain favor with God. Obedience is not a matter of rule-keeping to gain favor with God, to somehow be forgiven and accepted by God. It has to do with faithfulness. Jesus is not saying your obedience 
plus your faith equals, some, equals salvation. Somehow faith, believing on him, plus doing his commands equals pardon, equals acceptance. That's not what Jesus is saying. That is antithetical to the gospel. What he's saying is, if you've already been forgiven and you are my disciples, you're not simply hearing my words, but you're doing them. You see, it's very easy just to simply claim, and I think we see this in our culture, claim to be a Christian. Uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. A disciple. Well, how do you know? It says, my disciples do not merely say they are disciples. They show they are disciples by what they do. They love what I love. They do what I do. They, 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 they live by my word. Jesus is simply warning here against a verbal profession that has not been, that is not accompanied by a new direction in life, a new changed life. He's warning people who are respectful, maybe go to church but fail to follow his words. And unfortunately, in Jesus' day, as we see here, and unfortunately, in our day today, we see the same thing. And, and I want to be careful, but I want to lovingly encourage you and challenge you with God's word this morning. There are people, and maybe you're here this morning, you're one of them, who claim to be a Christian, yet from time to time, you'll, you'll talk about the church, you'll talk about Christ, but you live your life with the same attitude, the same actions as you always have. Again, we're not looking around. Yeah, that's that person over there, all right? This is, we're looking in. But you know deep in your heart that there has been no change. You know deep in your heart that you claim Christ with your lips, but you do not honor him with your life. You may come to church. You may even come up to communion on a Sunday morning. But you know, and God knows, there's been no true repentance and there's really no desire to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and the rest of what Scripture teaches us. We're not talking about perfection, right? I know some of you will go there. Jesus didn't say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do everything I say exactly when I say it, exactly when I say it, and exactly how I say it. Nobody does that. But do you call him Lord? Are you claiming to be a Christian? And you really, the bottom line between you and the Lord you do whatever you want, whenever you want. If that's you this morning, hear the call of Christ. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you, to pay the price you couldn't pay. He rose again so that you can have new life. And he's calling everyone everywhere to repent, to turn, and to follow him. Remember Levi chapter 5, the tax collector, who's Matthew, we know he's Matthew. Yeah, he left his, what, tax booth, and Jesus called him, come follow me. What is the Lord asking you this morning to leave behind? What is it that you are holding on to that's causing you to ignore the call? To ignore the call to turn from your, your sinful, rebellious ways and turn, trust Christ, follow Christ, obey Christ. I want, you, I want to encourage you with the words of, of you saw Dr. Dan, uh, Charles Stanley passed and went home to be with Jesus. Let me encourage you with, with a quote from Charles Stanley. Obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Right? Jesus is saying there's nothing greater in this universe than me. If you're going to follow me, I'm going to be your Lord. You're going to leave behind the old life. Levi, we saw, he left his tax booth and he just stepped. 
Generally speaking, a discipleship, a call of Christ, is to renounce the lordship over your own life. Trying to justify yourself. And reorient your life around Christ and the gospel. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith, and the talk of the lips is worse than useless if it is not accompanied by sanctification of life, end quote. Mark 8, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, tape up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, whatever, but whoever loses life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So genuine discipleship, Jesus is saying, begins with a relationship with the living Lord, and that's by grace alone through faith alone, but continues as we begin to hear Jesus speak to us in Scripture. We begin to see God's uh, revelation through Scripture. We see it to begin to see Jesus' life lived out in Scripture, and that begins and sustains change in our life when we are walking, following, and obeying Him. It's relational, it's verbal, and it's behavioral. Look at verse 47. Everyone who comes to me, that's a verb, action, come to me, verse 47, second verb, and here's my words, it's listening, it's, it's paying attention, third verb, and does them, right? We do that when we read scripture, we're studying scripture, we're listening to the word being preached by the power of the Spirit, we're, we're learning, we're hearing, and we're understanding scripture, but we must respond by doing and the one who hears Christ's words and does them, look what it says, verse 48, what is he like? He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. The flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. Family, you know that you have dug deep and you're on a firm foundation when, when you hear and you put into practice the supernatural love of enemies that Jesus spoke about. You're doing good to those who hate you and persecute you and mistreat you. You know you've dug deep and you're on a firm foundation when you hear and put into practice this enormous generosity to those who can never repay you, verse 32 and 36. You know you've dug deep in the foundation when you, when you hear and put into practice this non-judgmental attitude that Jesus talked about. You're quick to point out your own sin rather than the sin is others in others. It is the one who comes to Christ through his word and lives it out that will stand firm when the storms and the floods pound against the house of your life. We'll be safe. Because this, when the storms of life come, they're not going to destroy us. They're not strong enough to overcome a house built on a solid foundation on the rock. Spiritual strength, listen, grows out of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's akin to fixing a foundation deep on the earth. Do you, do you realize when, 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 you, when you lay a foundation deep in the earth, it takes work, and the work is worth it because when the storm comes, your house will stand. Nothing will shake it. Again, J.C. Ryle, listen to this quote. Such a man's religion as Christian following Christ may cost him much. Like the house built on a rock, it may entail on him Pains, labor, self-denial. To lay aside pride and self-righteousness. To crucify the rebellious flesh. To put on the mind of Christ. To take up the cross daily. To count all things but loss for Christ's sake. That's Philippians. All this may be hard work, but 
like the house built on the rock, such religion, discipleship, following Jesus will stand. The streams of affliction may beat violently upon it, and the floods of persecution dash fiercely against it, but it will not give way, end quote. Okay, we're not talking about working for your salvation. I know I need to mention this. We're not talking about working for your salvation. We're talking about sanctification. We're talking about the the disciplines that help us to grow as we dig deeply. Like gathering together uh, regularly as a church, hearing the word of God preached through prayer, witnessing, giving, personal reading of the word of God. All those things that flow out of our salvation. That's why Philippians 2 Listen to Paul's words to the church of Philippi. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, got it? That's obeyed Christ, not obeying Paul. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, like, oh, Paul's around, we better listen to Jesus, right? Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Yes, our relationship with Christ grows deeper when we join God in what he's doing in our sanctification. That's the word we get the word energize. It's God energizing us. He's doing the work in us and we're joining him by doing the work called that helps us to be sanctified, to grow in our relationship with him. And obedience is on top of that list. Okay? Working for salvation, we're we're digging deeply, we're, we're reading God's word, we're hearing it preached, we're putting it into practice, we're, we're obeying the Lord Jesus Christ because of our salvation, not for our salvation. Very important. But notice how Jesus ends his sermon. Rather than closing with words of comfort, he ends the sermon on a plane in verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them, I'll tell you what he's like, a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, When the streams broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was what? Great. No depth. Houses built on the surface. Storms and trials and hardship of life come. The house will fall and mighty will it be when it falls. Mighty crash. There's no middle ground. It doesn't say, oh, but the house that is, you know, halfway dug, it's either you're digging deep or you're building a house on the found on the ground, right? With a with the foundation or without a foundation. Again, I'm not an experienced carpenter. I would actually say I'm not a carpenter at all. But even I know that a building structure on top of the ground is not going to be stable and secure and in any way be able to withstand the storm. What is your house built on this morning? It's been said you're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or getting ready to go into a storm. What is your house built on? Storms will come. Trouble's going to come. Maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's hardship. Maybe it's heart-wrenching disappointment. But trials and tribulations and trouble seems to be the test, is it not? When life is easy, it, it, it is difficult to really see What kind of foundation am I on? What kind of foundation are others on? Same with a house, right? It looks good from the outside. Before me, uh, there was a pastor, Phil Taylor. Some of you may know him. Not many of you do. Um, He had a house in Del Mar, and his house looked great. Billy will tell you. Billy helped him. Well, he was pastor here for a few years. Well, it rained a lot one year. 
And what happened to that wall? The wall caved in under the, in the basement. Whole wall of dirt, and the house was getting ready to collapse. You know what you're building on when trials and difficulties come. That seems to be the test. But when the storm comes, you know. Is it strong enough to stand? Or is it built on the ground? When trouble comes, a life without a solid foundation will fall apart. But a life anchored into the bedrock of obedience to Christ in his word, in his promises, lived out in the life of his disciples, followers of Christ, will keep us standing firm. In 1994, a pastor by the name of Scott Willis and his wife Janet, they had their six youngest children, six out of nine, and their six youngest children were piled in a minivan, buckled up, and left their, they left their home from Chicago, 1994, six of, their, of nine children, left their home in Chicago, headed to Wisconsin. While driving north on Interstate 94 in Milwaukee, the van ran over a large piece of metal that punctured the gas tank, turning the van into a fiery furnace. By the time the van stopped, the parents fell out. The children were hopelessly trapped. An article was written in the Chicago Tribune, and this is what it said. Even in the first moments after they escaped from a sudden fire that consumed their minivan and trapped six of their children who burned to death, the Chicago minister and his wife did not question God. Recalling the moment, recalling the moment after freeing themselves from a burning vehicle on a Milwaukee expressway last week, Janice, Janet Willis said that when she looked back toward the minivan and began screaming, no, 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 when her husband, Pastor Scott, touched her shoulder and he said, Janet, this is what we've been prepared for. And he was right. He said, Janet, it was quick. They're with the Lord. And he was right. This is the article. Burned, bandaged, and still in physical pain in Milwaukee area hospital, the couple, husband and wife, displayed extraordinary grace and courage Wednesday as they calmly presided over a news conference they had requested to tell of how their unquestioning faith has sustained them through the loss of six of their nine children. Sedated and still surely numbed by the tragedy, listen to what they said, the couple said they derived strength from reciting and reading scripture. Passages from the Bible. It comforted them as they watched also as they watched videos of their children in the hospital room. Janet and I have no, ha, Janet and I, the pastor said, had to realize that we're not taking a short view of life. We take a long view. That includes eternal life, end quote. As the band comes up, I want to say this. I know that's a heavy illustration to end a sermon. But it's a heavy passage of scripture. It's a heavy passage of scripture. Storms fell on the Willis home, pastor and his wife. Floods of sorrow pounded against his foundation, yet they stood firm. The ultimate reason is that they have built their lives upon God's holy word. To withstand the storms of life, we must lay a solid foundation. We must anchor our life to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. I don't know this family, but one thing I know. To throw yourself upon the word of God, upon Christ the rock, had to be because they dug deep. Reading, studying, praying, rehearsing, and acting out. Living out 
truly what it means to follow Christ in obedience as he is for them the ultimate treasure of their life. What kind of life are you building on? Are you digging deep into the solid rock of Christ? What kind of fruit are you yielding? Is it, is it just, are you just talking the talk? Or are you walking the walk? My prayer for us this morning is that we drink deeply of the gospel and allow Christ to live through us as we dig deeply by obeying his word, building on a, on a sure and firm foundation that cannot be shaken. Family, remember, salvation is a gift. It's a free gift given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Have you received that gift? Have you trusted Christ truly and genuinely? If you have, then you've turned from sin and Jesus Christ is now Lord of your life. And I pray, don't leave this place until you do business with God. For you settled what foundation you build your life on. The band's gonna lead us in a song called Jesus is Better. Part of it is, part of the song or one of the verses of the song is when castles crumble and breath is fleeting upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. That's my prayer this morning. Let us pray. Father, we, we pray, God, that you would show us the beauty, value, worth of Christ. Lord, help us to drink deeply of the gospel as we sing this song. And for those who have maybe here and like to talk about Jesus but have never truly repented, turn to follow him, to give up the lordship of their life and to bow their knee to the king of kings who gave his life for us. I pray, we pray, your spirit would do that work and they would be serious with you, receiving that free gift and following the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, God, all of us, to respond in a way that brings glory to you as we sing to you this song. In Jesus' name, amen.